they weren't disbanded. And I think the biggest one in their school together. I know, but you weren't in it. I wasn't in it. I saw nineteen million dollars on Say My Name. I know, but did you? Did I what? Ask. Did you? Absolutely, I say. Dashi, aka Aeolus White, aka Creamy Cappuccino. Um, that Creamy Cappuccino was inspired by this um, bar once. Once I wrote this bar, you know, I used to have a notebook where I would just write, I guess, similes together or just word association things where if I thought of a word or thought of a phrase, I would just write it down. And I wrote this really vulgar bar that I won't really say because um, today is going to be a this is going to be a classy podcast. Um, we're going to talk about serious issues. We're going to get into some shit that's a little sticky. So I, you know, don't want to start out being too um, I don't need vulgar. So. To start, there was a clip going out around last week or on Twitter, maybe even two weeks ago at this point. I don't know. Um, Corona has also confiscated my sense of time, so I can't tell you what anything is. What, what day? I have no information about the calendar. But um, but yeah, I saw it was like, you know, Keely from 3LW was talking to an old girl from... Um, Destiny's Child, and they. This was a TV show that apparently they tried to sell to a network, and there was no interest, so they only shot the pilot. Whoever decided not to shoot this was an idiot. This would have been gold TV, gold. I would have lived my entire life from it. I just thought about you know starting off pretty light. So shout out to those girls. I really need her name. What is old girl's name? Because like, I don't, I don't remember. Um, oh, Farah, that's what it was. Farah, so I wanted to talk about something fairly serious, or at least not. I guess I always talk about serious shit, but I always connect it to, to nonsense. So this is going to be an effort not to connect it to nonsense, even though I likely will, because that is the way my brain works. Um, I've been having these conversations, these extended conversations with a gentleman who I otherwise respect, I mean, emphasis on otherwise, about alternative medicine to the use of alternative medicine to um excuse me to treat uh corona or to at least prepare the body for corona he see even in that modification that qualification i have softened it his perspective is that there's no such thing as germs, no such thing as viruses, like no such thing as I think this is a scam, a governmental scam. And this is, you know, the type of propaganda, like I'm, I almost said post-prison propaganda, which is fucked up. But this is the kinds of ideology that comes out of... Um, out of oppressed people needing to find liberation, 
right? And that's really what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the emergence or the cyclical emergence of a what I'm calling a liberated health model or like a liberated theory of health. And I'm only using this language because I'm reading this book about like how quantum field theory got its name. Well, there's a portion of it about its nomenclature, so it's kind of, I don't know, but whatever. Ignore that. And what I mean by liberated health model is that, like, if you talk to people on the block, if you talk to people from an island, talk to people outside, you know, older folk in the country, in, you know, the South, you know, folks that really... I'm talking about deep country. You know, there's a whole bunch of, and I'm talking about like people of color, like most, like black, mostly. I mean, but even the black and indigenous, right? So, to the extent that indigenous culture has survived, I think it actually has largely, well, I shouldn't say that. I should say that I think a lot of other cultures have woven indigenous cultures in on the low. Like, don't actually know that, you know, the origin of this word or this practice is um, indigenous. It's coming from, like, the Native tribes of the variety of, like, you know, Native American folk. And a lot of that comes from a whitewashing, a white retelling of history, all of that. that. This is at the topic of that. But you have this idea, this politicized health model, which I think is smart... Because you need to you need to politicize everything, particularly and and health. But this generational craving for a liberation that also allows us to take care of our bodies, principally, that also allows us to have dominion and control. And be the master of our bodies and our welfare on a very, on a physiological basis. So it's not just, oh, I got to go to a white doctor for something. Even if the doctor is black, you know, the sort of, the Western tradition is white, right? So there's a, there's a desire to want to be able to look to the earth. And that's another aspect to it, but I'll get to that in a moment. To be able to investigate on our own and build a collective base of information to own and cure own our bodies cure diseases manage our health and sometimes that comes in conflict with what we acknowledge with by we I mean just general mainstream culture identifies as science um, identifies as positive, um, not as in non-dangerous health practices, and you know it. It it's not reconcilable. It's an irreconcilable difference, because well, in a lot of ways, or at least it can feel that way, because when you have this desire, and I'm going to talk more about this desire in a moment, but this is this two prongs, so that's kind of why I'm talking about this now. When you have a desire for liberation that is built on, you know, two really important facts, at least as it 
pertains to medicine. When you have the desire for liberation, you have a necessary and just distrust uh, of white people and white things as it pertains to particularly your body, right? So if I say, if I'm in a conversation with you and I give you information because you do not trust the source or you do not trust that the, the white supremacist, really imperialist, colonial, like that type of mindset has been eradicated from my source, you don't believe what I am saying. And then because I might believe in science or believe in whatever, I don't believe what you were saying, you know, which is if I don't believe the source of information, if we can't agree on what information is and we don't agree on what data are like, there is no way to win. There's no way to move forward. You know, if, if the value of education itself is in question, then an education, I, I mean, embedded, embedded in a white society, then credentials are lost. And, you know, and for me, on a personal note, and I don't want to go into this now, maybe I'll return to it, but um, on a personal note, I think the value of one's work is really the ultimate test, right? But you still have this question where it doesn't matter that you have a degree or that you are a specialist or have you've done this for years or read a bunch of books because these books are, you know, it's kind of like just infinitely regressive in that way. It just, it, you know, the books are white. The pages are white. The, the person who cut down the cheese, are, you know, it, it just gets to a point where it's hard to build a bridge um, and hard to make progress on that. So going back to the distrust. There's a book that I don't want to plug because I have not read it myself. I just, excuse me, I heard and I read an interview of the from the author a couple of years ago, maybe like last year or two years ago. Potentially more than that, actually. I'm not sure. Whenever HBO did the special on Henrietta Lacks, I read the interview with her and I researched the cases that she cited in her interview. Um, I am, I'm actually thinking about, I'm actually thinking about reading her book and reading an old professor's work that mine, one of my professors in college wrote um, the principles of biomedical ethics, um, which is pretty, you know, famous in that, in, in that sector or whatever. It's a, Obviously, it's a sort of fundamental, can um, kind of like canonized book in the field, and I wanted to read it ever since I had him. I studied with him, but I just didn't because I thought it didn't matter for me. And now here we are. Um, so the book, well, the author Harriet Washington published a book called Medical Apartheid, and that's a subtitle that I don't remember. I think it's like. Um, uh, the, the dark history of medical experience, experiments on black Americans um, from colonial times until today. Our friend, I think I did, that is probably it. I think I did a good job. But, um, 
and she talks about the the legacy of white doctors um, using black bodies brutally, gruesomely, with like exercising such cruelty on our bodies in the name of like medical progress. And, you know, from at least, and a lot of people that study this know this, but I'm not sure if everyone does. So I know everybody probably that listens to this podcast probably heard of the Tuskegee experiment. But prior to that, you've got, prior, prior to that, you've got the father of gynecology, um, J. Marion Sims, who essentially performed surgeries to cure fistulas and as a result so i'm not gonna go into all that because i'm no one probably wants to hear that shit but it's you know prolonged labor can result in fistulas of various degrees and various so in the name of fixing that he performed surgeries on female slaves the the notes are saying you know 10 to 11 of them but there are three of which he did not use anesthesia he performed up to 30 surgeries on one like performing 30 surgeries on one human being um gynecological surgeries for you know without anesthesia is as you know criminal and as cool as you can be right so you have that as sort of the beginning and still i mean for for a large portion of you know medical history he was really celebrated for his work like it wasn't until later that people actually took you know on like you know uncovered this shit well gave it spoke about it publicly and decided to change that but there's stats there were statues of him like he was a white man that built a legacy that founded a branch of medicine off of you know on the backs of black women and then you have and then i think when i thought about this next in my mind was tuskegee and for those who don't know about tuskegee you know essentially there was a group of um, about 600 black men. I think it was exactly 600 black men. Um, 399 of them had syphilis. 201 did not. And they told them that they were, you know, being treated for something, treated for some, you know, bad blood or just negative, just, you know, some blood issues, not specific about the diagnosis. Um, and essentially... It was supposed to last for about six months. They've got their, they, they got some free meals. They've got some medical exams. And essentially it went on for 40 years. They never got, they never, the people, that the clinicians that ran the trial didn't tell them enough to actually get proper consent from them. They never treated the people that for syphilis, you know, Despite the fact that about 10 years, I want to say about 13 years in, um, you know, penicillin had been given the green light, had become the drug of choice for, for syphilis. So you have allowed people to carry venereal disease until their death without curing them, despite knowing that you've cured, that you can cure them, despite creating, you know, urgent care, not urgent care center, but rapid testing or rapid treatment units to care for folks with syphilis you know despite the fact that in the 1940s there you know was a military or like a military incentive to 
protect the to, well, to protect the military from venereal diseases, right? So it was for folks that were going to be drafted, treatment was required, and they still hindered this group of people from um, receiving their receiving their treatment. So when you have things like that, when you have the, you know histories of these same, and I'm on the syphilis right now, just as it's a good example, but even related to syphilis, like. In the 30s and 40s, they were going crazy on this. On this, you know, they were going to Guatemala and and you know, in fact, deliberately infecting soldiers and infecting prostitutes, infecting prisoners, infecting people with like, mental health issues. They were doing the same thing in prisons in Indiana a little bit earlier in the states. Like they were just doing this to people, and most of these people, of course, were of color. And then even late, so then you have Henry Halax, right? Someone who went in for treatment for cervical cancer. It was unsuccessful. Doctors keep her body, keep her, keep her tissues, and you know never seek to continue to treat her, but learn a whole bunch of shit from from the tumor, from the tissues, from the tumor, right? So you have that and never and then never say anything to the families, never say anything to her, despite the fact they were actually looking into the biological sort of material of her families as well. You know, then you have people. There's another story that I heard. Well, not that I heard. I want to make too much like gossip, but, you know, even later on after her, because that was in the 50s, like 1951, you have in the 60s, Dr. You know, Eugene Sanger, who was exposing folks, cancer patients to whole body radiation, and about 70% of the people that he worked with were black, right? So the Pentagon funded that study. You know, and they did not see consent forms. And then the reports showed that one fourth of those people died from radiation poisoning. So if you are a black person that grew up, and this is not, this is obviously examples of, these are examples of advanced cruelty in the field. This does not speak to what I can call microaggressions, but they're not actually microaggressions. All the statistical things that, we know now, right? We know, I don't know, the, I don't have the exact numbers on fans, but we know that black women, you know, black women in childbirth, or black female, I guess, childbirth, you know, kills the mother more than, they, more than it kills white women. We know that. We know that in general, black people are undertreated. In general, you know, we are... We are on the shit and on the medical stick, right? We always are given the shit and on the stick, right? So if you are that person, if you grew up or became aware of the fact that at its most mild, the medical establishment will ignore you. At its most mild... You will get treatment, but you won't get fair. You won't get equal treatment to a white person. At its most, you know, mild. At its most violent, they will expose you to to toxins. At, at its most violent, they will do surgeries on your body without your consent. At its most violent, they will, you know, let you die from a disease that they can very well cure just for study. 
And when that's the history of your interaction, you don't want to just believe everything you say. Everything that's everything the medical establishment tells you. You just don't want to believe everything the medical establishment tells you. Because you've seen in the case of Dr. Singer, like in the case of him, you've seen the, the government ally, you know, ally itself with this cruelty. Right? So you, now you have so a government, a political medical establishment that doesn't care about black bodies. That is fine with poisoning them and are, fi- and are sanctioning and funding its death. Or our death. And a lot of older people remember these things, or even if they don't know it, sort of like academically, they sense it from their own interactions with doctors, right? So then you have, so that to me justifies a fair distrust. Like that is a good ass reason not to fuck with doctors, or at least to be. It's a good reason psychologically. Logically, no. But it's psychologically and just sort of from a fair response survival mechanism, it's, it's completely reasonable to not want to do this. And then, or I should say, not to not want to do this, it's completely reasonable to want to seek alternatives for alternative forms of medication. Uh, to want to explore alternative medicines. Because you see... A failure of people at its, like I said, at its most innocent, as a failure to research, to care, to treat. At its most evil, you see basically murder or and torture. And then you have the other part of this. The part of this that I consider to be, and I'm going to take a sip, hold on. But I consider it to be a trauma response. To me, and I've been thinking about this a lot, and this is a little tangent, but as I've put myself together, and that's how I say as I've come to a healthy place spiritually, mentally, blah, 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 I always, I tended to regard trauma responses, responses that are derived from trauma, like anything that could be emotional or mild PTSD, frankly, to be bad. And to the extent that, obviously PTSD is bad, but the trauma responses that I'm talking about are not quite to that level. But I used to term those things as negative off the bat. And, and to some extent, I, I still do. Like when I notice that someone is moving out of fear, that they're, you know, flinching, that they've sort of counted as reflex or made as reflex a fear response, I am like, and that fear response in the absence of a justifiable stimulus, I'm like, well, that's not good. And even in the case of, I use flinching just because I'm thinking about G Herbo, but um, aside from G Herbo, 
you know, though these things can manifest in a lot of ways. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I think I talked about this in the last, po- last podcast, you know, because I've been an independent person. Um, I was raised to be independent. And um, circumstances later in my life kind of it made me be independent. I now have to remind myself that I can lean on people. It's not automatic. And that's because it's been embedded that the idea that if I don't do it, it won't get done. That sort of fear where I have to act or there will be peril is a fear response, right? And a lot of times I thought to myself, well, this is obviously not healthy. It's not ideal. No, nothing out of fear is ideal. Nothing out of trauma is ideal. And I still believe that to a large extent. I do think that it's not quite that black and white. Because a lot of times the reason that we learn, the reason that we keep behaviors was that at certain points in our lives, it works for us. The fear response did save our lives. The fear response did get us out of a bad situation. It did prevent, you know, something. Like, so it did have a function. It is not the best way to achieve that end. But it's not useless. You know, it's, it, you know, you kind of have to shift your perspective a bit as you mature. And this is a complete tangent. This is more like a spiritual word than what the fuck I was talking about before. But I'm going to get back to that. It's more like a spiritual word. Like, I learned that to heal, I can't look back at these things, any negative experience, any any fair response, any tool set that I constructed to survive as negative. You know, I cannot do that. I can't be mad. I have to be loving retroactively and retrospectively, you know, to that, to this environment, to the environment. And to the person that built those things. And then to say, you know, this shows me that there is something important here. This shows me ingenuity. It shows me trying to survive or whatever. There are much better ways to get this done. But it's not that you did a bad job. It's just that you just used what you had. And I kind of realized this maybe like five or ten years ago. Maybe like five to seven years ago. But I bring this up to say this now. A lot of the trauma outside of medicine also drives us to look for alternative medicine. And the trauma that I'm discussing is the trauma of an interrupted history. The trauma of imperialism, the trauma of transatlantic slave, the transatlantic slave trade, the trauma of the caste system, you know, the trauma of um, whatever the fuck they called it, the, you know, and uh, the Spanish caste system, I don't know what it's called, I forgot. You know, these traumas, the genocide of you know indigenous people, indigenous culture, this, the interruption. Anytime that your history is interrupted, particularly like anthropogenically, so by other human beings, but if it's interrupted by disease, if it's interrupted by war, if it's interrupted by 
you know, some asshole. You know, I'm thinking of Hitler in this case. You know, anytime it's interrupted by acts of violence, there is this sense that the old ways were the best. And I'm not saying the old ways like 10, 15, 20 years ago. I'm saying in broad, big human history, the old ways were the best. Well, I shouldn't say big history. That's really broader than that. But like, you know, broad human history, it's the best. The old ways were the best. So you have these, you have a lot of black people that in response to the, the white Western indoctrination and the, and the response to the interrupted history, the response to the genocide, the response to the white sort of infatuation with study or this type of academic, you know, subjugating study, You have a, a lot of black people trying to cope and the way they try to cope is to look backward and reach backward and look try, try to bridge the gaps of the, try to connect the history that's lost. And you saw this with black Zionism but you see this on a, on a less political movement basis. You see this with people returning. And even in the language, like when people talk about growing food and when they talk about this type of thing, they talk about returning to basics, returning to the earth, returning to tradition. And when that's the case, or when that's the mindset and the objective, you have people really being and feeling empowered through this quest. So when somebody like Dr. Sebi comes along, and for those who aren't, you know, familiar with Dr. Sebi, he's this Honduran guy who Well, he was this enduring guy who was who's a self-proclaimed healer, advanced a sort of a theory on pathology that was there ain't no such things as germs and virus and bullshit. The cause of disease, quote unquote, was sort of a malfunctioning or, you know, compromised mucous membrane, that mucus is the center of disease, and that if you maintain an alkaline diet and, you know, eat living things, not like a lot not like animal meat, it was obviously a vegan diet. But try to eat, you know, only life can give life essentially. Like don't eat dead things. So try to plant, try to, you know, not to overcook, you know, not to me a lot of raw things, etc. And all this shit, he claimed to cure, you know, everything, basically. All, cure the uncurable, HIV and all of this. When a lot of people love that idea, 
because it is a it rejects well first it bridges us to history because we have a sense that's what our ancestors did they must have so we have a, there's a sense that this connects us to the earth and it connects us to our past And it deals with the fact that our present or our immediate past is full of stories where black and indigenous people were disturbed. It's full of stories where we were murdered or ignored. So here comes this black man who is, you know, Afro-Indigenous and has a practice that is earth-based. That you pretty much eat shit as close as you can from how it grows out the ground. And of course he's selling you something, so that's the tea. You know he got his own formulas that are a billion dollars. Like I think one bottle is seven hundred and fifty dollars of like the sell food thing. So, you know, that's always the tea. That's always how they get you. But even beyond the capitalist element, people particularly black people, drink it up. Drink it up. Because, and it's powerful because it copes, and as I just said, but I want to repeat it because it's important. It's powerful, the promise of alternative medicines, particularly ones that are earth-based, it's powerful because it deals with the trauma from the medical establishment directly, and it deals with the indirect, broad spectrum, the sort of anthropological, historical trauma of having our history interrupted. And you see this even in, I mean, it's much different, it's much lighter in terms of, you know, the queer population, particularly the queer male population. Where there's a sense that a gener in urban cities, there was a sense that an entire generation disappeared. There was a sense that, you know, in the 80s and, and 90s that, and I remember going to the club, which was, you know, whatever. But I remember going to the club fairly young. I wasn't too young, obviously. Like, I wasn't that kind of girl. I wasn't like a 14-year-old girl in the club club. I was like more like a 17-year-old girl in the club. But going to the club... And seeing, like, 25, I would see, like, you know, 25-year-olds, so 17 to 25. And then nobody, like, I would see, like, some, maybe, I would see maybe some 30-year-olds. I'm trying to think. Like, I basically saw nobody my uncle's age. So my uncle is, like... I guess 18 years older than me. Yeah, so I, I I would see nobody his age. 
Like there were just, and at first I was like, well, maybe your ass is going to young clubs. But then it just wouldn't be like, I would talk to people and I would get to know a lot of people and they would talk to me and they would just be like, no, like I lost a lot of friends. You know, I lost a lot of friends that would be, I mean, at the time that I was going to the club, I guess they would have been like 36, right? Yeah, I guess they would have been. These guys lost a lot of friends. And no. You know, because I'm, yeah, I guess that is right. Is 36 right? I feel like that's right. But yeah, I lost a lot of friends. And I would be like, that's, you know, maybe like 40. And I'd be like, that's really sad. And I think that pe- that interrupted history encouraged people to look back on the culture that was both created in spite of it and created before it and more more importantly created after it immediately after it right so you have this kind of not adoration but a sort of a pining to revisit that period and the same thing with you know and obviously there's pain that people like to process their pain in this way but you see it in all different cultures it is obviously mostly aggravated and egregious in this in the in the narrative of black people and native americans but yeah, and I, and, I, and I think to say, and like, I don't want to come across as someone that believes or is a champion of Western medicine because I'm not. I mean, I, I you know, I'm a fan of whatever works. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. When I go to the, I do go to the doctor, like, I'm, you know, one of those girls that loves a doctor, you know, but... Here's what I'll say. I'll say I want people to be careful. Careful in their quest. To explore, to apply, to study alternative medicines. Just be careful. And I'm not saying it like, oh, be suspicious. I'm saying try your best to understand global implications so i was having this conversation and i realized it it harkened back to the talk that i had with not the talk but what i said in, in a podcast a couple episodes ago about leadership and i realized that most people um most people like this gentleman don't have the capacity to think for more than 30 people and he, I would give him 30 and he's like good, you know, so 30 is good, honestly. 30 to 50, like you are a good, that is well beyond the average person. <laughs> but he cannot think for more than that. He, his, he doesn't have, and by think, I mean have emotional space, active empathy, you know, a real, true, holistic regard for more than 50 people. He don't have that. So when we were talking, 
he was just like, yo, like the people that, you know, drink and they put poisons in their bodies, like their immune systems are trash. They're dumb. They go, well, he didn't say immune because he's a believe, but whatever. But like their constitution's weak. Their practices are, you know, trash. So if they get sick, they get sick. I'm not about to go. He was like, I'm not about to go and give them free shit because he thinks he has the cure for all this shit. So give them free shit for them. They poison their bodies. And sometimes the price of detox is death, you know, or severe sickness. But it's just detox. And I'm like, okay, no. <laughs> like, you know, you know I wasn't with that. But I'm like, well, all that's fine and good, but you are not, if you think you have the keys to the kingdom and you're letting people die in hospitals, you're trash. One, because you, if it's as simple as he was telling me that he thinks it's just like a fear response, the shock and the fear response is just killing people. And I'm like, well, if you think this, why don't you go to the hospital where people are dying and tell them that they're just afraid, that they're not, they don't have pneumonia, <laughs> that they're just afraid, hand them some sea moss, and call it a motherfucking day. If you think it's that simple, then do that. You know, if not, shut the fuck up. You know, that, that was kind of, that was my perspective on it. But more importantly, and more intelligently, the problem is a public health issue. The problem is, if you're going to be an, an anti-vaxxer, and even if you're right, that you've somehow not quite cured, but you've maintained great health in spite of having or carrying whatever you don't believe as a virus, but having this pathogen... You then bring your immunity or your, you know, the fact that you can don't have any symptoms or are able to maintain a perfect bill of health despite carrying this pathogen, you bring it to a public space and then you kill people that don't have the same practice. And just because they don't follow the same practice, that doesn't mean that they deserve to die, right? Because that the, the price of not following your practice can't be death. You know, and for me as someone that cares about a lot of people, that is that's a public health issue. That is a moral issue. That's a bio that is a problem. You know what I mean? And this is why the anti-vaxxers are, you know, doesn't make any sense. And for, you know, it makes sense for an individual choice. But it doesn't make sense for everyone. You know what I mean? So I just say be careful. Also say do your own research. You know, find a community that supports that you believe in. Find a community that, a practice that you can trust, okay, uh, elders or someone that you can be an apprentice under. Just know what you're doing, at least in your system of beliefs, such that, you know, you don't want to do harm. I think, you know, the do no harm pledge is a, a good one for anybody that cares about healing, no matter what. The oath, like no matter what type of doctor you are, that you know, not to do true harm 
should be your objective. I mean, it's I should at least be part of the objective. So stay safe, everyone. This one was kind of like a heavy one, but I wanted to have this conversation. I am also writing about this. So maybe, I'll, I mean, you know, I'm working on some things and I'll talk about this next podcast. But yeah, um, stay, stay safe out there. And get ready for when we get out, because when we get out, I'm about to cut up. I'm going to cut. But I'm practicing my handstand now, so just know it's going to be that kind of summer. <laughs> <laughs>